This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. Thank you for coming. I saw Jurassic Park, like I mentioned, 29 years ago, and the same feeling I had 29 years ago that I had today, the feeling of wonder and amazement and totally blown away. Uh, part of what made tonight a little today more special was a lot of our students who never saw on the big screen got to see it with the big screen with their parents uh, in the audience. So that, that was a really wonderful thing for us. But we're here, we're so glad to have the screenwriter here to help us crack the DNA code of Jurassic Park script. So please welcome UCSB <laughs> Poly Theater stage, David Kepp. All right, so you and I are in an age where we grew up watching Spielberg movies. Yes. Uh, you know, let's duel, Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, E.T., we can name a lot more. Uh, how did you transition from being someone who was influencing him as a young child to collaborating with him on Jurassic Park? Um, well, I was working at Universal at the time. I had started, uh, my first couple of movies were indies, um, which we made sort of by hook or by crook, the way, the way you do with indies. Um, and I had written a script called Bad Influence that um, the guy who was the head of production at Universal at the time, Casey Silver, uh, wanted to buy and thought it would make an interesting comedy, but I'd written it as a thriller. So I said, no, I'd rather not <laughs> tell you that and turn it into a comedy. I'm going to see if I can make it as a thriller, but why don't you hire me and I'll write you a comedy. Um, so he, he said, I like that kid, he's got moxie. So uh, um, that's not how Casey talks, but it would be fun if he did. So I was working at Universal um, on you know, a couple of year thing where they pay you a little money and you give them idea, tell them ideas and write scripts and hope all goes well. And one of those was Death Becomes Her, which uh, Bob Zemeckis was shooting at the time. So I sort of came to... Uh, Spielberg's attention, and he'd been looking for, or was looking for someone to work on uh, Jurassic because they'd had a, a few tries and it wasn't working out. Um, so they, he wanted uh, somebody new, and I think part of the appeal was I was, I was new, uh, he'd never heard of me, and I was probably cheap. So if I <laughs> failed quickly, it wouldn't really cost anything, and he could move on. Um, but happily, it worked out. Um, but the the point you make is a good one, which is, you know, those formative years when you're, I think, I think our aesthetic tastes are formed from, in my case, like 14 to 24. Mm-hmm. Whatever you see in that range, whatever you listen to, whoever you read, that's going to dictate what your tastes are for the rest of your life, I think. Um, or it was in my case. So from my 14 to 24, I was seeing Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, E.T., uh, you know, and there's no way I could not have been um, influenced by him. And, and, and so to be then, not that long later, um, collaborating was uh, daunting. You know, and, and, and I had to try very hard not to be a sycophant or pitch things that I thought he would like. Yeah. Certainly I wanted him to like them, but I needed, I had to keep reminding myself I was there because he felt, rightly or wrongly, that my opinions had some validity. So it was hard to say, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm a total peer of this guy. Because <laughs> I made apartment zero. So, you know, <laughs> surely. Uh, well, uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the scope. So the book was a little more frame. Oh, the big concern of the book was the dinosaurs getting off the island, where the, the original book. But the movie was a little more of a small group trying to survive. What led to your decision to kind of shift the focus away from 
you know, the whole larger story in the book to more of a just keep it isolated? Books are just too big. Um, they're, they're, you know, I've adapted a number of books, and the problem is always the same. You have sometimes 400 pages of, of stuff and characters and all the time in the world to digress and go into people's thoughts and feelings and all the things you can't do in movies. It's, it's kind of a miracle to me that movies get made from books at all because they're just such different media. Um, they're stories, though, so you've got a story, but more importantly, characters. So hopefully you pick up a few good characters, which I think we did from the book, um, although we felt free to mess around with them a bit, um, and, and then see like how much of this book story can I use and where do I need to make up my own stuff. So um, it's just, the world is too big if you, and, and also we, we had to take into account the fact that these effects had to be invented mm-hmm. in order to, to make the movie. So they're really quite limited by today's standards. There aren't very many effect shots in, in this movie. I don't remember the exact number, but it's, it's under 100, um, which, you know, today, 1,200 is not uncommon. Um, so, and, and there was no guarantee that it would work at all. So you have to choose to focus on the people and will they survive, because if you just do a movie about dinosaurs, it's, it's impossible, or was. Yeah, I remember Laura Dern mentioned in an interview. She was just like staring at a cardboard box with an X on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, when that kind of thing goes on to this day. You know, I, m- one of my favorite moments on this set was watching Jeff Goldblum run from a guy who had a ten-foot stick with a cardboard <laughs> T-Rex head on it. <laughs> and Jeff said, I would, it, would, "It would help a bit if you'd roar, uh, if you could, just a, uh, just a bit of roaring." So the guy did, and Jeff said, "Ah, of course, uh, that was a joke." Uh, uh, I'll scream. That'll be what I do, and uh, you just chase me. <laughs> kind of funny. Well, uh, the story deals with the, uh, the man playing God in the pursuit of scientific discovery, you know, but also for profit. Uh, a little bit of Frankenstein thing going on there. Sure, plenty, uh, what, plenty of Frankenstein. Yeah. When structuring the script, how did you approach balancing? Like, you had to put all the scientific elements, but you didn't want it to kind of weigh down your thematic core story. The science was really fun. That was part of the, you know, part of the appeal of it was that uh, Michael Crichton had come up with this, you know, once in a lifetime genius idea. Actually, he had a few in his, but uh, for anybody else, that would be a once in a lifetime genius idea, it, because it's so plausible that the DNA is preserved. Mosquitoes bite the thing. The mosquitoes preserved. The DNA is therefore preserved. That's just great. And if you sign off on something that's easily, fairly easily explainable as an audience member, um, then you're just along with the story. And it was such a, it was just a great idea. And he had all the science to back it up. So we just had to figure out how do we express our science? We can't go on for five or six pages the way he does. Um, And I remember, I think Stephen and I were talking and said, almost as a joke, what if it was just an animated sequence? Or maybe he wasn't kidding, but I, I laughed first, and then I said, oh, you're serious. And <laughs> I can't remember. But um, it, because it's a theme park and they have to explain it to you know, visitors, it makes sense that there'd be a thing. So let's do it in the spirit of, um, in our case, Hemo the Magnificent, which was this movie about blood that you used to see in seventh grade health class back in the day. So um, that was, it was always looking for what's the clever... What's the easy and what's slightly cinematic way to explain this stuff? And then I had, I had been so daunted by the, the Malcolm character in the book, I wanted to cut him. 
um, because I just didn't, it was just too much work to figure out how to get all this guy's ideas into the movie. And Steven said, yeah, but Goldblum came in and read some from the book, and it was so good. Can't you make it work? So, so I figured Yeah, math and chaos theory is not exactly the most visually easy thing to transform. Heavens no. Uh, well, let's look at Alan Grant, Sam Neill's character. He's uh, you know, the protagonist. Uh, while he's a paleontologist who develops a healthy fear of dinosaurs, he's more afraid of kids at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, what was your approach to taking him from the book version of the character into turning him into this character? Something happens when you... In the book, it doesn't matter if he's not really pursuing... If he has any kind of personal issue that he's thinking or feeling. Um, he can talk about the science and about the dinosaurs. The entire book and your attention is held, and it's fine. Movies are different because you're looking at someone's face, uh, and you have to have some sort of emotional investment in them. You just do, or if you want your movie to be good. Um, movies work best when our emotions are engaged. So he had to have a personal issue, and that's what we came up with. I like the opening with him when he terrifies the kid with the raptor. He uh, seems to take a little perverse pleasure in that several yeah. times during the film. <laughs> but it was also a good way to set up the raptors. Yeah. You know, so it was. Yes, he's. And if you think you are, if you watch a description of a scene like that in Act One, and you don't think that's coming back in Act Three, <laughs> you're just not. You're you're not playing along. All right, Ellie Sattler is a badass paleobotanist, doing everything from leading a rescue mission to reaching into dino poop to solve the mystery of the sick dinosaur. At the time, young female audiences were never were impacted because they didn't see a lot of women on the big screen from the STEM sciences. Uh, the characters. She was not a damsel in dress, but she was in charge. What was the process of kind of creating her into this kind of very interesting, unique uh, character? Um, well, thankfully, she was there in the book. So, so uh, again, uh, credit must be given to Crichton. Um, but I ran with it. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, she, was just a, she was a terrific character, and there was no reason. There, were, there are still a preponderance of men in the movie, and it's 30 years ago now, so but, you know, I think we did okay um, in terms of that. I remember getting someone complaining. Uh, this was before online, so I must have gotten a letter from somebody <laughs> that had found the screenplay and read it and said, why is Grant's character in dialogue referred to as Grant and Dr. Sattler's character is referred to as Ellie? And I wrote back and said, I have no excuse. And I haven't done that again since. You know, it's that thing, you know, men are men and women are girls. Um, that's not what I believe. I'm saying that, you know, is the, the old way of thinking and approaching things. So um, while we were all evolving, um, we, you know, we had, all have a ways to go. Now, Hammond was a, a, kind of a big departure from the book in a lot of ways. The, the book was just a, a downer in many ways in that I think everybody, almost everybody dies. And we, we had a... <laughs> You know, there's a certain body count that we were comfortable with and a certain body count we weren't, and a darkness of tone that Stephen just... Stephen, later that year, would go on to make a hopeful movie about the Holocaust. So, like, this is a guy who sees hope in the world, and so to, to you know, to, to have Hammond be quite so diabolical and suffer a horrible ending just wasn't something either one of us were interested in. Well, I thought it was interesting. The scene where he uh, meets Alan and Ellie, um, he was... He loved science, and he loved what they did, but he still had that corporate greed side of him and, you know, or to play God. So it was interesting, much more dynamic of a villain instead of, like, the 1980s cartoon CEO villain. Yeah, um, who were always German uh, <laughs> in, the, in the 80s. Um, 
Yeah, I think Stephen preferred the Walt Disney model to, uh, to what was in the book. Walt Disney himself, the man. Right. Yeah. Do, you, do you, Stephen, recognize the irony that, uh, that you created a movie that became commercialized and now has an awesome water ride and Jurassic Park uh, thing? Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and at the time, um, there, you know, there's a very uh, self-aware shot in, in the gift shop or in the restaurant that sort of pans lovingly off the merchandise. Yeah that would then later go on and be sold. And I remember saying as I was writing it, I'm writing this movie about greedy theme park people and I'm writing it for greedy theme park people. <laughs> um, and then it has gone on to be part of a theme park. Which, but that's all kind of, that's a snake eating its own tail, that's okay. No one was injured. <laughs> so, for, because we have a lot of screenwriting students in the audience, what, um, so when you're adapting a book, what is your first step? Is it you, you map out the scenes you want, or what is, what do you, what's your first step in kind of figuring out your... Um, read it. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, you, you know, read it as you would read for pleasure and see if you get pleasure. And if, if your ideas... It's the same for me with a book or an original. Movies are... Very, it's very binary. There's a one or a zero in my head. I'm either swimming with possibilities and oh I, wouldn't this be fun and I have another idea or there's nothing and I'm like that could be cool but I don't I don't see it um, and you have to be super honest about that um, my friend Steven Soderbergh says there are only two answers as to do I want to do a movie and that is either no or hell yes <laughs> but there can be nothing in between and I've, I've always found that very inspiring. And so read it and see, do I love, do I love this or do I see it? And can I bring something to it? Um, if the answer is yes, then I read it again and I get out my three by five index cards. You know, I, I, I outline like most people do, n not up on a board, but on cards that I lay out on a big table. And I start, I outline the book because um, I want to see as going through every time there's a scene or a division of time or place or chapter or whatever, it's a new card. And I want to see what, what, what structure did the author have. Um, and as you do that, and I recommend it as an exercise, if you don't take a book you like and, and do that to it, you could do it in a day. Um, the, you, you see, oh, I see why he did this. And, oh, that got, that got her around to that. And, you know, you can figure it, you can, you can figure it a little. And, Oh, it's funny. I thought we'd seen that character sooner, but no, it's been 80 pages. Um, and you sort of, the mystery of how they structured their story falls away a little bit, and you can see it. Then I start just throwing cards over my shoulder that I know should not be in the movie, uh, or can't, or I don't want to, or it's too hard. Um, and <laughs> the, sometimes then I have to go dig it out, because it's, it's too hard, but it, it's got to be in the movie. Um, and then you see, and you say, well, is that a movie structure? And the answer is almost always no. Um, so now I start to think, what are the pieces of interstitial material that I would need to get me from this, which I know I want, to this, which I know I want? Um, and then is it too long? Do I need to combine these characters? But it's all sort of standing over three by five cards. And, and then I read it a third time, if I feel like I have an outline I like. And this time with a pen, I, you know, this is a very prosaic answer, but, uh, you know, I work with office products. Um, I, I copy the book and put it in, like, a three-ring binder so that I can highlight things and dog-ear things that are, like, snippets of 
dialogue or little turns that I know I want in the thing. And after three reads, I'm pretty much done with the book. It now must become a, a movie. So then I carry on from there. Now, in this case, did you have any restrictions on, because the special text technology you mentioned wasn't really set yet. Did you have any restrictions of, we can't do that, or, did Stephen says, or write it and we'll figure it out later? No, I asked him that very question. Um, and he, I said, what are the limitations that I have you know, because of effects and dinosaurs and stuff? And he said, the only limitation is your imagination, which I took as somewhat hostile, um, <laughs> but also uh, inspiring, uh, you know, thanks, Dad, kind of way. <laughs> and I, so I went and uh, I said, okay, and I was able, I wrote things that I didn't know if they were possible or not. Now, in, in, in many cases, he had storyboarded sequences he wanted. <laughs> He didn't quite know who'd be in the sequence or what the, you know, but he, there's certainly the T-Rex attack on the road was always going to be a centerpiece of the movie. That was apparent from anybody reading the book. Um, so, you know, I was working uh, with those a little bit, and therefore I figured he wasn't create, suggesting any shots that he didn't think were possible. Uh, but in fact, he was, um, because it, it was all a big gamble. Um, that technology did not exist. Uh, the initial plan was to do maybe stop motion, but a lot of robotics. Um, and there is a lot of Stan Winston's brilliant robotic work mm -hmm. in the movie. If you don't see the legs of the creature, it's probably they're probably uh, puppets. If you see the legs, they're certainly CG. Um, and there was I remember the day one day in prep, there was a. Um, an effects test that was they were screening at Amblin, and they said, "Come look at the effects test." And it was just a, it was a Velociraptor skeleton running in place, and no musculature or skin or anything, just just the skeleton running in place. And they started it, and everybody gasped because that's going to work. Um, but there was no reason to think it would work because it, it it never had the 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 biggest effects. CG was born about a year before that with with uh, Terminator Two, but that was those were very melty weird effects, not trying to create an animal. Um, so it was one of the reasons it was so enthralling uh, as a movie is we'd just never seen anything like it. Well, then, speak, then we'll take the original scene where you know we have our characters first see the dinosaurs. The, uh, the emotional impact of it. And I even found Ian Malcolm the most doubting of them all being wowed and blown away. How did you feel that played out the first time you saw that, you know, in this, the room where they finally see the Brachiosaurus? Oh, it's spectacular. It's just great. It, it, and it, it, it's, it's not just that there, you know, there's a great big thing that might be scary. It's majestic. It's beautiful. Um, and that sort of, Capacity for awe and wonderment is really Stephen's um, magic dust. I don't, I don't know how he does that, but he, he does it over and over and over again. And that was, um, no, I was, I was quite wowed by that. I was actually wowed by the scene where Malcolm and Hammond were just debating the science. Wow, yeah. that's more fun. Well, it that's is more fun because for you know, me, because <laughs> Hammond is not. It's not so great. It is great because Hammond's like, I can restore extinct animals that we're killing now, like the condor. So I felt that was kind of interesting. So how did you approach that? Because you wanted to make it seem like a little more of a complex conversation. Yeah, because it is, um, and you wanted to. You want to always give. Uh, you want to get people. If when there's an argument in a in a in a piece of drama, 
but you've got to be able to create a, a good argument for each side. You have to let everybody be able to defend themselves, even if it's a, you know, the hero debating a, a stone villain. The villain's got to have a pretty good point um, if you want your scene to jump a little. So I, I needed both of them to be able to make decent points. Malcolm, of course, makes better points, but um, <laughs> you know somebody's got to somebody's got to wear black. Yeah, because in the, also that sequence, Alan is still playing the scientist, though. Like he sees a baby raptor, and it was kind of interesting because Alan's still taking the approach, trying to figure out the science of it. Where Ian was just like, "This is going to end terribly." Yeah, uh, which no one has listened to him on nine movies later. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't listen. Yes. Yeah, t- uh, okay. Well, the kids actually I found very interesting. Uh, from, you, from observing your work on this and War of the Worlds with you know, Steven Spielberg, you don't seem to mind putting kids in mortal danger. <laughs> uh, but the, I found that Tim and Lexi are complex kids. You know, Timmy challenges Alan in his book. They're smart. Lexi's a computer whiz. Still, they both see a dad figure in Alan. How did you approach them to kind of make them very dimensional, make them kids, but also make them interesting to watch? Well, is is with... All the characters in a movie where there are dinosaurs are very difficult to write. Um, these movies are quite spectacular for the director and the effects people, and they're a little bit less so for the actors and the writers, I feel. Because we have to work even harder because we're competing. You know, if, they, if the characters come out and talk about their parents' divorce too much, you really want them to shut up and go out and look at where the dinosaurs are. Um, <laughs> As one of my sons said when he was five years old, he was watching a movie that was boring. Uh, and we were in a big theater, and he stood up and shouted, just go where the bad guys are. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was one of the best writing notes I'd ever heard. <laughs> I try to keep it in mind to this day. Um, the, the, so it's, very, it's hard to write human characters that can compete with the level of fantasy that you have. So... You also have to make sure they're in the same movie. You know, the, the the level of fantasy is quite high in this movie, so the characters have to be and feel pretty real, but they can't come from, you know, a piece of '70s realist cinema and and be plopped down in this '90s effects movie. They have to sort of exist on the same plane. Doesn't really answer your question. <laughs> well, it's time to talk about the T-Rex scene. We've waited. Uh... 20 minutes, and the movie we an hour and two minutes. Uh, like the 1950s monster movies, as well as Spielberg's Duel and Jaws, I referenced, Jurassic Park hides the monster well, in, you know, at least halfway through the movie. How did hiding that for you as a writer think build the tension for this sequence? Well, it's, it's I mean, I, uh, again, he sort of made that famous in Jaws, and it, it, it came from, it had been written and spoken about so much that I was aware that that's a pretty good idea to keep, you know, to suggest as much as you possibly can and keep it off screen as much as you can. Um, born of technical necessity on Jaws and, and then just was, or maybe not, maybe that was his design. Um, but it, it's great because you can, you're, you, that's where your imagination goes, is what are some ways we can think of to suggest this without seeing it? You know, the, the, the cow being lowered into the raptor pen and seeing stuff flying around, the guy going into the box in the beginning... Um, you can suggest a great deal of violence without seeing it and just glimpsing it. Um, the goat we have great fun with um, because, you know, we, we say, oh, there's a goat and there's a no-show and the goat lays down and that's very disappointing. Then the goat's there and then the goat's gone and then there's a goat leg and, it, you know, like there's a lot of good goat stuff. Um, <laughs> so, and then, so what that does is it 
just creates, it builds a bigger and bigger desire to see for the creature to make its entrance so that then it better have a good entrance. And um, I was just saying to you before that I came in in the middle and I, I saw the raptors in the kitchen scene, and, but this also applies to the T-Rex attack on the road. It's just some of the best film directing I've, I've ever seen. There's the economy of the shots, and the, the, it's just it's, it's stunning to look at. So I'm, um, I'm just admiring it as, as, as you are. He, he, he held off so long, but crucially, when it showed up, it wasn't a letdown. It really had a good entrance, and it looked terrific. Yeah, it's one thing you mentioned this people are economy shots. I, I actually, I'm always struck by like more the scenes based in realism, like T- Timmy stuck in the tree. Felt like the more terrifying in some ways than the T Rex, and uh, you know because it just feels like it's something that could happen, and we can feel the kid. Is yeah. that yeah? Is that something for writing? Is that you look at it that way? Do you kind of approach it differently or something well, like that? Looking for ways to put your characters in peril that don't involve the dinosaurs yeah. is very important, um, and and I think a lot of the good stuff comes from that because you need that you need to have that stuff too and you can't otherwise it becomes a cg fest and i think that later films uh you know now cg is so accessible and affordable mostly affordable um good cg is still pretty pricey not good cg is very easy to get um that there's that it it, it, you know, you can get lazy, and you and and then your thing looks bad um, because you're relying on it too much. It's a tool; it can't be the means of expressing your story. Um, so anything you can, the, anything that's a practical, natural effect is still always going to be better, um, particularly at suspense than than a CG effect. CG effects are great for spectacle. But also from character, I thought it was interesting because uh, you know, Alan was behaving like a dad. A kid was terrified, threw up, and embarrassed. So that was actually kind of a sweet little moment to kind of pull us away from the dinosaurs and kind of ground us a little more. It's true. Um <laughs> 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 And of course, you, I, I'm also one of the other scenes that struck. We were, we were talking. I usually do an experiment with my students. Like, what are your scenes that stand out to you? And they, a lot of them jumped on the Ellie Hammond scene, just having the ice cream, the, the fear of losing their family and their loved ones, again debating the whole science versus that. What was that, what was that scene for you? That was the most rewritten scene in the movie. Um, there's one in every movie uh, where you just can't seem to finish it uh, to everyone's satisfaction. <laughs> and you keep getting called back uh, for more. Um, and the, the ice cream scene... Uh, was the one that I rewrote 27 times. Um, and in the end, they usually end up not that long, the scenes, but hopefully you get at a few truthful things. Well, it's really a turning point, because in the book, if people read the book, his fate is a lot worse than, you know, that actually changes him a little yeah. to accept the reality. Uh, also, a little other change, Ian Malcolm dies in the book. Sort yes. of. No, he does. Yeah, does he certainly does. Um, he was just too fun. We didn't want to kill him. Our, our body count was a lot uh, lighter than we killed uh, cheap shot. We killed the lawyer instead um, <laughs> on a toilet. Um, so it, 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 yeah, it just the, the tone of the movie is lighter than that of the book. And you did kill, uh, you know, Newman from Seinfeld. So, well, he had it coming. <laughs> <That's not being laughs> uh, okay, so I have to ask about the classic Jeff Goldblum line: "When the Pirates of the Caribbean ride breaks, the pirates don't eat the tourist." Where did that? Where did the origin come from? That a 
meeting with me and Stephen, and I can't remember if I said it or he did. How's that for an unsatisfying <laughs> answer? Um, I'm going to say he did. But that's just because I'm on tape, and I don't want it to get back to him. And then he says, that was my line. But yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's prob probably. All right, so we've, we also noticed the pacing picks up now. I can tell you about hold on to your butts. I do enjoy that. Because I that's saw someone one. wearing a shirt in the, in the front that says hold on to your butts. Oh, really? Butt. Very, very quickly. <laughs> so uh, we were doing reshoots on uh, Death Becomes Her, which is an ending that didn't work. And we'd done the reshoots, and the movie was coming out in about six weeks. So we were looking at the dailies, and the director was anxious. Um, that, you know, hopeful that the reshoots would work. And so as the lights went down in the dailies, Zemeckis, who was directing it, said, all right, hold on to your butts. And so I was working on I went back to my office and wrote it in the script that day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so you keep a notebook is my point, because people say funny stuff, and if you can use it, you know. Um, so the pacing does pick up at this point. Uh, we had the first movie was all set up. We got the dinosaurs, and now we're kind of running for the second half of the movie. Uh, starting with, the, I thought, the great sequence where Timmy's on the uh, fence and Laura Dern's flipping the switch. Was that always how you originally imagined that kind of sequence and the, tension, uh, the pacing? Yeah, the I mean, D.W. Griffith would be very happy with that sequence, I think. Um, you know, we're, you can hear the film students in the audience. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that, who famously in, invented cross-cutting to create tension in, in cinema. Um, the, 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 the sequence works very well because there's peril going on in a couple different places. Mm -hmm. And my favorite moment is one that steps out of just subjective or objective filmmaking. When she's turning the power onto the various things, we're going down with her, so the camera move is motivated. But then the film skims ahead and shows you that the perimeter fences are coming. That's now subjective filmmaking. Um, but it's totally effective because it's just a countdown. It says, look, she's here, there's about six to go, and then you cut back to the other thing. I think it's a really brilliantly structured sequence. I also, I'm just saying a lot of things about how brilliant it is, I, you know, I, but and whatever. You're leading you me wrote there, it, though, so it's like, uh, Yeah, okay. But <laughs> he directed it. But you're leading me there, so I have no choice. <laughs> well, I also found it interesting, like we talked about, you, you mentioned earlier the setup and payoff, you know, Muldoon dies exactly how the Raptors were described, but Ellie's the only one that survives it. You know, Arnold and Ellie. Yeah. I mean, Arnold and three of them. Yes. Uh, that's the setup. The setup from the earlier part is exactly as he said. It occurred to me as I was watching it this time, if he had, instead of pausing to say clever girl, if he'd perhaps swung the barrel of his gun around, <laughs> he, might have, he might have been around for the Lost World. <laughs> But also, I thought the setup was brilliant because even in the first early shot of the movie, you saw the raptor's eyes when it attacked the worker, and you saw intelligence yeah. there. That was really a good setup. Yes. Where the T-Rex just seemed more of you know an animal and scary. Yeah. You also see a lot of the... Well, there was, a, there was a rule that no one was allowed to refer to them as monsters. They were animals, mm. uh, and they were doing what animals do. And there's a lot of very interesting juxtapositions that remind us of that. In that very sequence, you see the... The, the raptor's eye, and you see a snake, a reptile, moving through the foreground. Later in the control room, you see the velociraptor, you know, crowing or whatever it's doing, and there's its DNA code is being projected on it because you know from some display. There's a lot of that kind of um, directorial flourishes that I think really mean a lot. Uh, again, talking to my students, where they all land on the scariest scene in the world is raptors trapping. Timmy and Lexi in the uh, in the kitchen. 
how far did you want to push the danger to the kids? What was limitations on that? What do you, why would you think? It was there's the there's no there's no limit to how much peril you can put a kid in. It's it's <laughs> it's so effective. I asked a friend of mine uh, writes Disney stuff. Some you know used to write Disney movies, and I said, why do you guys always kill a parent? Like always, <laughs> you're always like ten minutes in. There's a dead parent. And he said, because those little bastards are squirrely, you've got to get their attention. <laughs> Grab them by the throat and hold on to them. Um, and that's, you have to. You've you got you to put people through it. And, you know, suggesting that the, I mean, I think the movie makes a silent pact. You go to this movie, you know the kids aren't going to get eaten or dismembered even. Um, but, <laughs> so you kind of know you're okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very elemental. Um, Stephen King has a great passage, which I can't quote because it's too long, but in Salem's Lot, he talks mm-hmm. about how there is a capacity to be terrified that we have as a child that we lose as an adult, um, but the kids are right. Mm-hmm. And that, that fear um, is, is, is really, you know, primordial. And um, I think when you're seeing a kid be menaced in a movie, it's, it's more scary not just because they're young and vulnerable and we're meant to protect them, but because we know how terrifying it is for them and we remember that. Um, that conviction that something's going to get you between your bed and the light switch, um, that, that doesn't leave us, I don't think. And did you, when you were writing it, did you have storyboards first? Did you imagine it first and then Stephen took over? How did that sequence? That particular kind of, sequence? Yeah. Uh, he had the boards. And I came in and was the lucky recipient of a great sequence, which I then wrote up. I would love to take credit for that. No, Stephen, I said, the kitchen. Um, but it wasn't. But it you wasn't. fought him on it. He didn't yeah, want to yeah, do yeah. it. And, but uh, it was, I, fine, let me do it. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't like that. No, he, uh, I think, was it in the book? I don't remember. Or is that something Stephen made up? I think something Stephen made up, if I'm not mistaken. Gosh, he's good. Uh, he is pretty good. Yeah. You remember, the book had a different thing where they went to count eggs as the climax. <laughs> Remember the whole after they got the park I back. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah. No wonder yeah. we changed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found also the, the the sequence with obviously the Raptors getting past the technology was really fascinating. Uh, was yeah. that something you were conscious like you wanted the whole movie where the technology was constantly failing the humans was kind of give you know the animals more of a. Yeah, technology must fail us um, because if the story you know it's all um, it's got to be fruit of the same tree. You know, and if the if if it's a Prometheus story, uh, which Frankenstein, uh, you know, Prometheus flew too close to the sun. No, he didn't. He he stole fire from the gods. I'm oh. thinking of Icarus, but still, <laughs> Prometheus is the story. Um, and Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, and um, the the idea is you're defying nature. You're doing things you, you know wrong, and it's going to lead to ruin. And the the humans in it must be failed by technology and. I liked that the animals are, they, they were, we talk about how clever they are so much that I had this idea that to, you know, the, my favorite, one of my favorite cuts in the movie is unless they figured out how to open doors and you go to them mm-hmm. learning how to open door. And if, you'd, if, you, if we've set that up correctly, that will play fine. If we haven't set it up correctly, it'll get a big laugh and people will walk out. Um, but we've talked about how smart they are for so long that I think it works, it works well. I do have a recommendation if you can pass along to Stephen. Uh, no need to go back and fix the special effects. They're amazing. 
but he's got to fix that computer effect with the slow three and a half inch drive and the lagging, trying to get the menus. No one's going to know what that is. But a few that's years what it now. was like. It <laughs> <laughs> was just funny watching it today. I was like, yeah. oh my god, <laughs> like clicking the menus. It looked pretty cutting edge at the time. <laughs> uh, all right, so we had the climax. Uh, did you always land on the T Rex coming back? And you know the that Raptors. Was, that was during shooting. Um, the way it was originally scripted, uh, which I'm. I can't remember if it's in the book or not, is um, Hammond, it felt important that Hammond must destroy the Raptors because that's the completion of his character arc. And in the classic sort of, you know, Michael Corleone model of character change, he has to go from this to that. And so from having created these things and I've been present at the birth of everyone, it seemed to make thematic sense that he's the one who kills the Raptors and saves the day. Um, But over the course of shooting, the, the T-Rex was working so well and was such a dominant presence in the movie uh, that it seemed crazy not to have it come back. Um, so that, that was a change during shooting. The, um, now, obviously, the, they, they escaped the island, but the original book ended with the island being destroyed, our heroes being locked up. Uh, was there any impetus for doing that, or you just wanted to leave it open for a sequel? No, no, no thought of a sequel, but... Do you want to have them locked up at the end of the story? It just again, movies and books are different. It's a cool ending of a book. Um, It's not the right ending of a summer fantasy movie. It didn't seem to us. Now we have a couple questions about Lost World, which also then, uh, what was the uh, the the challenge of the fun of being able to expand Ian Malcolm's character because he is a supporting character in the original, and he got to really kind of go deeper into his character. Yes, that movie was very, very hard. Um, sequels are brutally difficult. I think that I think that the movie world is doing better with them now when they are when they're serial adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know comic book movies do well with sequels because they have sometimes 50, 60 years of material and mm-hmm. storylines to draw from, and they know where they're going and they can set things up, and then you go there and it's just a continuation of the story. But this was a survival story. Uh, this was you know, will things go wrong at the island and can the people escape? So to do it again, you, it, it's hard to continue the story. You're kind of just repeating the story. So we, I found that script much harder to write than the first one because to continue the story, you got to have them get to the mainland. That didn't seem, well, we did eventually do that. It, it was difficult because to get anybody to go back, you have to overcome why on earth would they do that? Yeah. Um, because we know now what can happen. So I, I found that um, really hard. No. I found it interesting that the movie... I complain a lot about how things are hard. <laughs> that you can imagine how my wife feels. But actually, I liked it because of uh, the ecological thing. Like, they're trying to go back and you know, preserve the island, which I found fascinating. Yes. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> but in some ways, you did have the great King Kong ending where you get through Act 3, get him off the island. That was fun. Did... I thought it, had, it, it, it regained some spirit of fun in, the, uh, in, in that. And, and obviously the boat um, that crashes into the dock is called the Venture, which was the boat in King Kong. So we were saying, look, we know, we know we're doing that. Um, and then I thought that was some of the loosest uh, filmmaking of that, the storytelling of that movie. Uh, obviously, we, we got to enjoy Jurassic Park. Did you imagine 29 years later that the film would still be so impactful? And no, I mean, who would? You, you know, you. I remember I had um, Brian De Palma had just directed Carlito's Way, a script I wrote the year before that, and 
we were friends and have been friends since. And uh, Brian's great, a very funny and fatalistic guy. <clears throat> and we went out to dinner, and I, it, we, you know, the, the in the lead up to Jurassic Park, and he said, "There's only one question about that movie: Will it make two hundred million dollars, or will it ruin everyone's career?" <laughs> And th thankfully, it was the former. Um, but it was, it, was, it was going to be kind of disastrous, or it was going to be you know, a great success. But you didn't have any idea which. Um, so no, I, I, I didn't imagine. Uh, we're going to ask about one piece of work, and then we're going to open up the audience so I get your questions ready. Uh, I can see you're excited. So. Uh, it is the 20th anniversary of Spider-Man. Oh, the yeah. Tommy Maguire version. And they just, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned earlier that you, we have a book, but in the case of Spider-Man, you had comic books and years and years of history. Yes. Was it a different approach adapting that and bringing that to life? Because the, the, just to put it in context, superhero genre was non-existent at that time. It was, it, it, it was, it was going through a dark, yeah. a fallow period. Um, the last time it had worked was Burton's Batman movies, which were the mid-80s, uh, late 80s. Late 80s. And um, it, wasn't, it hadn't worked for 10 years. And... There have been a lot of bad ones um, and cheap ones. And, you know, Columbia's... The, great, the exciting thing was Jim Cameron had written a treatment uh, for Spider-Man and then, you know, there was a bunch of litigation and companies went bankrupt and things happened. Um, but the fact that he took it seriously, I think, made a lot of people think, oh, wait, you could take this seriously. Uh, Cameron did. Um, so Columbia was willing to spend a lot of money uh, and make a big, serious movie with A-list filmmakers and, you know, actors, and, and, and they really were willing to go for it. So it was, you know, I went and I, I was, had been a fan of Spider-Man growing up and mostly the animated TV show. Um, and I just went back and read as many of the comics as I could in one go and found the storyline that I liked, which was um, Peter M.J. Harry, which was... You know, a triangle is the most stable plane in geometry, and it's also something great to build a story on. Um, and that triangle worked great. And the fact that one member of the triangle's dad was going to be the villain, and that guy didn't know, it was all very, you know, melodramatic and effective. Uh, how did you react to your story coming back to life in the uh, new Spider-Man movie? Um, that, well, it's not really mine. You know, like, you... you, you, you we get to work on these things for a while, you know, but it, it had been a part of the culture for a long time. So I did my version, uh, and then it was fun. I, I found it kind of moving when Toby's character came back because he's older, and you can see the living in his face and in his eyes. And I thought he played it. I thought that was really kind of touching. Cool. Hello. Oh. Hi. Hi. I had a prepared question. Your film's like Jurassic Park. World, War of the Worlds and Panic Room all take place over short periods of time. How does confining the time frame help you as a screenwriter? That's my favorite question. Um, uh, it, I call it a bottle. Um, I, I said earlier the world is too big, uh, and it is. It, anybody who sat in front of a typewriter or you know blank screen to try to tell a story, or blank pad to try to tell a story, knows, well, God in heaven, where do I start? and what will contain this story. Um, and movies in particular uh, rely on structure heavily to tell their story uh, in ways that books don't have to. Books can digress. 200 pages, 500 pages, whatever you want. 
Movies are different. People expect, you know, a certain length. They expect a certain beginning, middle, end endness. Um, and finding a structure that lets, confines you is actually, to me, much more useful um, than, than anything, any idea. Um, you mentioned Panic Room. That, that came because I was, you know, lived in a house like that. Not that big, but I lived in a house like that. And um, I, I, the house was 120 years old, and it was falling apart, and we had to remodel it, and everything, nothing worked, and it was, you know, I hated the house. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, this house is killing me. I'm going to write a story in it, you know, like to get even almost. So the, the, <laughs> the rules I set for myself were, you know, I get five characters, two protagonists, three villains, and I cannot leave the house. How can I tell a story? And the story is vertical because uh, it's a townhouse. Uh, and within that, I found myself having lots of ideas. If I'm confined to something, I can get ideas. It's like if you learned about the Hayes Code, uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, movies were pretty ribald, and the public was starting to get not happy about it. And so th it was a self-censorship thing. You can't have sex. You can't have, you know, a number of things. So uh, clever writers and directors said, well, how can we suggest things that are really, you know, dirty or saucy um, without, and still operate within the code? And they ended up having stuff that was much more, you know, suggestive than it had been before because they were contained a little. Um, so I find a, the bottle for my story, whether it's 24 hours, is a great bottle, uh, one week, three days when they must get off this island. Um, you know, those limitations and War of the Worlds, again, another bottle. I said, let's, we've seen a lot of these alien invasion movies. Let's contain this only this character's point of view. Let's see, no, let never cut to a foreign capital. Don't cut to a general pushing things around on a map. None of that. Just what the main character sees and does. That's all we get to see. Uh, and within that constraint, Stephen then was able to extrapolate ways that made it even scarier because a limited point of view is scarier than a global point of view. So I recommend finding that bottle um, to tell your story in uh, because it just it, it, it makes it all manageable. Uh, big thank you for my mom first. She used to put this on for me at Jurassic Park every day when I was growing up. So you bought her a few few hours. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my question is actually about the second movie because I don't think anyone's mentioned it, but you have a little cameo in that movie near the end. You're eaten by the T-Rex. So I was wondering, were you, were you like jealous that you were in the first movie? <laughs> Did you want to get killed? I don't know. Uh, who, whose idea was to have you be killed? In that, that was one? my idea. I, uh, I cast myself. I was turning in a rewrite, and I said, there's a person in here that I wrote that I would like to play. Uh, and Stephen said, can you act? And I said, sure, sure I can. Um, and uh, I just thought it would be a lot of fun, because all he has to do is run down the street and scream and, you know, get eaten. And uh, so I, I, it was something I really wanted to do. Then he, um, and, and it worked out fine, and then he, offered me a part in Saving Private Ryan as a guy. And I said, sure, let me read it. And I read it, and a guy has, this time, a couple lines. He says, you know, well, we got, he's running down the ammunition they have. And then he steps outside a tent and gets shot in the head and dies. And Tom Sizemore drags his corpse around for a while. <laughs> and I was like, this is a fa No, I'm not going <laughs> to. No. 
wasn't making a career out of being chum for your <laughs> movies. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It did, uh, it did, I did gain a lot of respect for what actors do. I think anybody who wants to write or direct should go play a tiny part in a movie if they can because you realize that it's you and that there's, I showed up the first night and they gave me my wardrobe and I put it on and I went and complained. I said, Stephen, I'm sorry, but I would never wear this and I think it makes me look fat and these, I can't run in these shoes and he just went, you too. Um, but you realize, oh, it's, it's me. It's different from, here's my work, go do it. It's me and I'm gonna look stupid or fat or say the dumb thing. And, and I, I have a lot of sympathy uh, empathy for for actors uh, as a result of that. How did you get the idea to write the second movie, the second Jurassic Park movie? Um, I'd like to apologize for any salty language I used earlier. <laughs> uh, I need to check the crowd a little more carefully. Um, uh, how did I get to write it? Well, it, the first one had gone well. And um, I had maintained good relationships with my coworkers, which is very important. You gotta be somebody that people want to work with. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them all the time, but it does mean that when you disagree with them, you're respectful. And so when the opportunity came around for another job, um, I think the director and the studio felt like uh, he, he works hard and he's, he's respectful, so let's give him, let's give him another chance. So I got the job. So a lot of the things you're learning in school right now about how to get along with the people you're with really are important because they help you in the work world too. Uh, so in the first movie here, we had Lewis Dotson paying Nedry to get the dinosaurs off the island. And then in the second book, he reappears but goes to the island himself to take the dinosaurs off to get what he wanted in the first place. But... In the second film, he was completely written out, and we had the new character of Hammond's nephew taking over and extracting the dinosaurs. What was the idea uh, behind making that switch? There was a lot of, um, you know, in the, in the couple years since the first movie, Stephen had had a lot of ideas. I'm sorry, I was leaning right into that. Um, <laughs> Stephen had had a lot of ideas. I'd had a lot of ideas. And then... Um, Crichton and I, you know, said, well, I'm going to write a book. So he wrote a book. But our ideas didn't stop. So I think that at that point, you had several people who felt like a second movie was going to be kind of their, their thing. And um, I always feel like we're, we're free to depart from a book in any way we choose. Because, you know, I, I don't, when people say, oh, they ruined that book when someone makes a movie in it feel like it didn't live up to the book. I always say they did not. The book is still there. You can go buy it right now. <laughs> we didn't burn the book. Um, you're, you're, again, you're in a very different medium, so you're making a brand new thing. I think also the idea of creating a brand new character suggests that you can cast anybody you want, and you can make it any kind of, any kind of character that you want whatsoever. Um, so I think, I think we just had had a lot of ideas already. When, uh, by the time the book was done. All right, well, we end our, our, our Q&As with the same question. We have, like we mentioned to you before, we have a lot of screenwriting students in the audience. If, what would a screenplay would you sign them to read, to study? Um, gosh, um, 
there's there's a there's a number I can tell you the ones that I read that were really formative for me, um, and they're they're both by the same writer. Um, no, I'll just tell you one of his and one of somebody else's. Now this was the early '80s, so you know you gotta. But Larry Kasdan's script for Body Heat is uh, just a screenwriting masterpiece. It's just just fantastic, um, and I'm sure you can get it online. Um, the I remember the first line in it is "Flames in the night sky," which is not a sentence. I, I you know, you, it has no verb, um, but um, that that sums up the whole movie. It's flames, heat, fire, uh, you know, sexual energy, night, mysterious danger. You know, like it's everything in 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 five words. Um, so I I learned a lot. Also, he has a, a good, clear, terse style. Uh, that I really liked. At that same time, I read uh, Chris Columbus's script for Gremlins, which was also um, really quite quite good. Um, for a completely different style, uh, I'm I'm a fan of terse writing. And if you, I, I won't be so solipsistic as to say, well, read my Panic Room script. But if you did read my Panic Room script, um, the I, I like terse. That's because I think you're trying to get a reader to push their eyes across the page at the rough, roughly the pace that they would watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Reading a screenplay is really difficult. It, it's, you, you are called upon, it's not like a book where everything's spelled out for you. You are called upon to imagine visuals and sound mm-hmm. uh, really clearly in your mind. So you have to read with a certain amount of concentration and participation. And I think when you get big, chunky, uh, descriptive paragraphs, you're, you're killing a reader. You're just, it, you're making it too hard. Um, and I, obviously I don't like things that are hard, um, but you have to keep them moving. So those scripts have terse styles that I like and emulated. Um, and uh, um, if you, however, I'm, I'm, there are writer, many writers feel differently than I do. And if you want to read, if you are given to longer descriptions and you like that, um, a brilliant use of that is Andy Walker's uh, script for Seven. Um, I'm sure that's also online. But Andy writes... Or Andrew Kevin Walker writes much more fully than I do, um, and it holds you. You know, it's I mean because he's brilliant, um, but it's just not my style. It's his. Well, uh, the last two years has been very difficult, and we miss being in a movie theater together. So I can't tell you how excited and happy we were that you let us come back together with Jurassic Park and join us today to share your insights. Well, thank you. Thank the you pleasure so much. to be here. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.